Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, the assistant editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to Scholarly Communication. Today I'm speaking with Professor John Ahn about the Journal of Black Religious Thought. John is associate professor of Hebrew Bible at Howard University. The Journal of Black Religious Thought advances critical scholarship in the fields of religious studies with special attention to black religious studies. Its inaugural issue was just released this past July. John, thank you for joining me today on the New Books Network. Caleb, it's a pleasure being here, and thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, I'm really excited to talk to you about this. Uh, This is an interesting project. And before jumping into talking about the journal, I'm just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. Um, I grew up in between Flushing and Bayside in my sort of teenage years. Uh, before then, I grew up in the Bronx and in Brooklyn as well. So I grew up in a predominantly Jewish neighborhood. So go figure that an Asian American growing up in a Jewish neighborhood. And so I went to more bar mitzvahs and bat mitzvahs than, than most people that I know or know of. And so I learned uh, to, to not only enjoy the Jewish culture, but the Hebrew Bible at a young age. But it's also part of the Christian canon as well. Too. And so I went to college uh, to NYU for my undergrad and took some Hebrew Bible classes. And my professors were like, oh, you're pretty good at this. And so I was like, cool, what, what do I do next? And then he said, well, you go to grad school. And I'm like, okay, I go to grad school. Where should I go? And he asked, oh, what denomination are you? And I said, I'm a Presbyterian. Then you should go to Pr- Princeton. I was like, okay, then how do I do that? And so one thing led to another. And I had some opportunity to to study with some of the greatest minds of the previous generation in the Hebrew Bible Old Testament studies, including Barbara uh, Childs and, and John Collins and Robert Wilson, and um, a, a great bunch of scholars um, that just have formed me, um, including David Marcus, who's a, a JTS professor of Aramaic as well. Too. And so um, it's been a privilege and a pleasure. And um, I'm currently at an HBCU at Howard University, and that in itself is a remarkable experience. And so uh, that's pretty much me in a nutshell. Uh, I specialize in the 6th century BCE uh, into the 5th century, but my interests have expanded into the 1st century of the Common Era, which is the time right before the New Testament began. And so, um, yeah, that's me. So, you know, I'm wondering with this journal, what led to the birth of the journal Black Religious Thought? How did you get involved in this project? And what's the sort of backstory there? Great question. Uh, The last editor for the journal, his name was, or the previous editor was um, one of the most prominent uh, New Testament Black scholars of the previous generation, Cain Hope Felder. And as he retired, he graciously handed the journal over to me. But the journal had been dormant for the past 12 years. When Howard University Press uh, went under, the journal also went under as well, too. And it was a dream of not only the uh, the School of Divinity, but also uh, anyone who had an opportunity to try to resurrect it. But the work was extremely difficult. 
Uh, shopping for a new publisher is not an easy task, uh, nor is uh, selling their vision and the idea of establishing a new journal an easy task. Anyone who's ever been part of a journal uh, realizes the, the challenge and the hardship that there are. Um, but I've had a previous experience with Brill, especially in biblical theology, Horizons in Biblical Theology, a number of years ago in my earlier part of my career. And uh, I had the privilege of being a book review editor at the time and built up some good relationships at Brill. And uh, when I had an opportunity to talk to Suzanne and her team about this new project, she said, let's think about it, let's plan it. It took about five or six years to, to launch this. Uh, COVID didn't help at all as well. So COVID slowed everything down. Uh, but in essence, um, the first issue is out. A lot of collaboration, a lot of uh, sacrifice, a lot of thought and planning went into this uh, initial issue. And we're utterly excited and grateful that uh, the issue is out. So, you know, for our listeners, what what is the, you know, maybe purpose is the wrong word, uh, you know what? What is the kind of the main uh, focus of the journal? What 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 makes it makes it unique? Another good question. In a uh, when we look at journals, especially the the big flagship journals in any discipline, let's say American Academy of Religion, or even in our Society of Old Testament, Society of New Testament, it's exclusively Eurocentric. In other words, you look at almost every major publishing. Um, firm or publishing house, see how many of them in their own portfolio has any colorization. Let me be very, very specific. Go look at every major, without mentioning any names, okay? (laughs) Right? Look at every major publishing house and see how many of them have a journal dedicated to, to blacks. We live in a time and an age where scholarship is diverse. And yet, the journals don't represent that diversity. Not only the journals don't represent diversity, but the people that sit on the boards do not represent the colorization and the diversity that is what we call the academy. In other words, when students are asked to read in these prestigious journals, it's a monolithic experience. They're getting only one side. And what the journal of black religious thought does, it injects this black consciousness, black academia, black brilliance, not just by blacks, but people by all colors and of dispositions. And it allows richness to be added, not only from a publisher standpoint of view, but also from an intellectual standpoint of view as well, too. And so I think Brill is on the cutting edge for doing so. I hope that this inspires other journals uh, or rather other publishing houses to, to sort of ignite new ideas for new journals that encourage black consciousness. And especially since we live in an age of hashtag Black Lives Matter. Uh, you know, we say we care. We say we can do things. Uh, but I think actions are much, much louder than just simple words saying that, oh, we want to make a difference. And so uh, I have a, I have actually the first issue, the hard print in my hand right now as we speak. And so uh, that's exciting. So thanks for that question. Yeah, I, I was wondering if you could talk about in, in that issue, you know, some of the articles and, and essays uh, 
you know, what are, what are some of the explorations that different scholars, if you want to mention anyone by name or, or mention any of the particular articles that you find particularly interesting? Well, there are, let's see, there are five articles in the first issue. Um, you know, one of the ways of measuring is this journal something that I would publish in, right? That's the first question that is every scholar. And it's something that I would definitely publish as a high-end journal. And so I'm also included in the journal, the first issue as well, too. Uh, and I, I represent the Hebrew Bible voice. Then we have a voice from um, the New Testament side, uh, Bertrand, Professor Bertrand Melbourne. On the Islamic side, Islamic studies, Quran side, we have Zani Valwani. And then on the theological side, we have an essay by Michael Hespel. And then again, on the practical slash historical, we have uh, an essay by Leslie R. James. Uh, let me begin with, let's say, um, my piece, since it's something that I contributed and I can talk very freely about, not that I don't know the other articles. Yeah, please talk about your piece first. I feel like that, that, makes, that makes the most sense. So my article is entitled, Joseph's Hyper-Assimilation, A Fourth Generation's Hidden Memory of Collapse. And what that article actually talks about is the familiarity with the story of Joseph, who is born to a very wealthy family, but is not despised, but rather probably envious and jealous because of his parents' love towards him. Uh, but he has a couple of dreams that make him sound pretty, in today's terms, uh, arrogant. And he sees the sun and the moon bowing down to him. He sees the 11 stars bowing down to him. But then he gets sold off as a slave by his own brothers. And then he winds up in Egypt, as some know, uh, only to be mistreated and then to be sent into prison. And then eventually somehow he gets out of that context and he rises to becoming uh, the vizier or the second most important person in the Hebrew Bible, or at least in Egypt, uh, in that sense that he had to assimilate uh, to, to his environment uh, to, to reach the top. And many people are familiar with the story about Joseph, and many are familiar with the story of rags to riches. But one thing that many scholars sometimes have not seen or paid attention to is that very, very first indictment on who generated systematic slavery in the Hebrew Bible Old Testament. So simply put, although the concept is there, who systematically enslaved masses of people? That becomes a fundamental question that we never ask. And the answer is none other than Joseph. So he winds up, you know, through his execution, his plan, after coming out of prison, right? After coming out of prison, he winds up uh, receiving the king's signet. He's put on new clothes. He's given an Egyptian wife. He's given new sort of identity. He's paraded in a, the chariot and etc. etc. And... Um, the most important thing at the end is prove your loyalty to Egypt. And as you are supposed to prove your loyalty to Egypt, upon the immediate death of his father Jacob, whom he buries, Joseph could have probably stayed in Egypt, but he doesn't. Or rather, he could have stayed in Canaan, but he doesn't. 
but he comes back to Egypt to show his Egyptianization. In other words, here is Joseph who says, I am an Egyptian among Egyptians. Now there's one final thing left for him to prove. And what did ancient Egyptians do to build these massive building projects? That's to enslave. And so we see Joseph enslaving masses of people, at least textually speaking. So at the end of the day, Joseph becomes the enslaver. Now let that resonate for a while. We never see that. And that's hidden in the memory of the editorial editions of the text. No one goes around saying, oh, Joseph is the one who enslaved his entire people. You never learn that in church. You don't learn that in synagogue. You don't. Most scholars miss this as well, too. So it's a, it's a subtle way of the editorial work of putting and making sure that this hidden memory of collapse is injected or sort of included by the editorial work of uh, the Joseph novella at large. And what that does is there's a warning to be, to be learned, a message to be learned. So by the time that you enter into the fourth generation where you want to succeed, and everybody has dreams about being successful. So that dream that Joseph had, you know, the sun and the moon representing his mother and his father, and then the stars and the, the chaffs of wheat all bow, bowing down to him. That was envisioning slavery. His own father and mother became slaves under his system. Is it worth it? Just so that you can get to the top. And I think the editors of the Hebrew Bible are saying, you, you may have your own dreams and volitions, but think twice. And self-ambition at the expense of your own people, I think they're asking us to think and reconsider. And that sets up for the next story, which is basically Moses. Joseph would enslave Moses would liberate. So and I think without Joseph, there's no real need for a Moses. And so that's the, sort of the first article at large. What do you think? You think that's interesting? That's fascinating. That was, I, I was honestly riveting. That was great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is, that is very interesting. I think like, I, you know, I, 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 um, I'm Jewish, but I, I don't know, you know, to my, my, my mother's, uh, uh, I don't want to say disappointment, but <laughs> my, I think my mother wishes I, I had a firmer grasp on the Bible. Um, I know I know who Joseph is. I didn't know I didn't know that in such detail, but yeah, I mean that's 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 extremely fascinating. I think that you know it's very interesting, of course, too. Like I certain parables too that to, to be gleaned from it, and I know that so much of of you know the Torah and or Hebrew Bible is so much about these interesting. Par parables that echo throughout uh, throughout time. Um, but yeah, that's that's extremely fascinating. I'm wondering, you, you know, when you say that the editors of the Hebrew Bible, uh, who are you? Is there any particular person referring to? Or do we, you know, obviously the some of the, the the writing around who actually wrote the the Bible, the Hebrew Bible, is contested. Well, you know, there's newer work that's been done on Pentateuchal studies. Newer work meaning that in our European colleagues, they see two large blocks of tradition as editors of the work. In North American context, maybe there's one or two scholars who still see 
four smaller sources leading up to the composition of the final form of the text. And so I think we keep it very broad. We call it basically um, the P versus non-P material, meaning P is priestly tradition or priestly scribes. And there are different gradations within that priestly school, uh, the priestly scribal tradition at large versus everything that's a non-P. Some of in previous generation of scholars or even folks listening may have heard of J.E. or the, the Yaoist, the Eloist. Well, that's sort of gone in Europe now. They sort of call it non, non-P material. The J and the E is just... Um, I guess eighth, seventh century is more, or even going back to earlier dating of the text is more difficult, as some would say, rightfully so. And then there's that larger tradition of the Deuteronomist as well. Too. And so basically, you have two large editorial editors. Um, you want to call them Democrats and Republican? I think that's probably the best way to look at it. Progressives and and sort of uh, conservatives, right? They're coming together, and their voices are actually coming together, and with different. Factions with different ideologies. And what the Hebrew Bible does, it's an amalgamation of various voices that are being included. Um, my current colleagues still see uh, the text as the sort of you know, the, the Deuteronomist versus the, the priestly tradition divide. I think it's more of an East and West divide, meaning that you have to remember Judaism is a diaspora religion. Without the diaspora experience, there is no Hebrew Bible. It's the Bible that kept the peoples and the communities together. And inside that Bible are very diverse voices of Jewish experiences. And the two largest diaspora communities during the 6th century all the way into the 1st century was in Babylon and the other place was in Egypt. Egypt was the progressive, liberal, open-minded Intermarriage is cool. You know what? Being Egyptian is good. Let's mix Yahwism with all the different local deities here. And that's legitimate for us. In Persia, Babylon, it was exactly the opposite. There's an orthodox way of worshiping. And if you aren't going to worship it this way, you're not part of the community. And it's a clash. And yet within that clash, the Bible preserved those differing views. And that's the beauty of the text. That's the beauty of the editorial work of bringing the text together so that the communities can come together. I think that's what we need more of today as well, too. <laughs> yeah, I'm sort of going jumping off on that. You know, I, I'm wondering, you know, for you personally, you know, parsing these questions and trying to understand, you know, this this ancient text, uh, you know, w- what is what is the role that a, that a journal like like the Journal of Black Religious Thought or, or other journals in general, what, what role does that play to help you connect with different scholars and and understand and make sense of the, the different theories that you might have? So publishing in a journal is very different than publishing in a monograph or you know, edit, edit, edit volume series or so. It's not only are issues or articles heavily, heavily um, peer-reviewed, not that you know, monograph series aren't, but it, there's a time process where it's faster. You can get the idea out quicker as well, too. And it's producing new knowledge. And it's a bit more experimental, whereas books, it takes more time. Um, for example, I, from my mentors, I said, they, they told me, um, don't publish anything for the first, until you have it down for the, for the first uh, six, seven years, you're still in the developmental stage. Only when your idea, your book gets to its eighth, ninth year, 
will it be actual actually sustainable for a period of 20 25 years or so so i've used that as a rule whereas journals give it a good three to four years and then you'll have a real good article nowadays some of our up-and-coming scholars you know whatever they produce and they present in their field uh, they just get it out there um, and so pardon the expression but there's a lot of junk food out there in terms of published work and so what we're trying to do is make sure that everything that is in our journal, not that all other journals are like that as well too, but um, especially in the Journal of Black Religious Thought, we want to produce the highest level of scholarship with attention to black consciousness, uh, but also ways in which it resonates across a historical spectrum, for example, slavery, um, or even in thinking terms about what does it mean to be a servant, what does it mean to be, uh, to have a just society? What does it mean to be uh, a child of God in the Imago Dei, uh, using MLK Jr.'s images as well, too? And so uh, these are some of the more important tenets of, of which this journal is, uh, and it hopes to, to achieve as well, too. Uh, speaking of which, the journal has its origins that go way back to 1943, when the first issue was... Um, done, I guess, by the first editor-at-large. And that came to a close about 12 years ago. But some of these names may, may ring a bell. Now, what's fascinating is this was all done by an HBCU, Historically Black College and University, Howard University School of Divinity. And the likes of Paul Tillich, Reinhold Niebuhr, Benjamin Mays, James Cohen, Desmond Tutu, they all published in this journal. But back then, it was called the Journal of Religious Thought. Now, as a Journal of Black Religious Thought, moving forward, beginning with 2022, we hope a stellar cast of other brilliant scholars across the globe will find uh, that they can publish not only here with us, but also to create another historical new legacy that really speaks to today's time and age. And for those you know, who may be listening and who are aspiring young scholars, I hope you can send me an email. And as you grow through your, through your grad school studies, eventually uh, you can publish with us as well. Too. So I remember when I was in my first few years of school, there was a list of journals that I always wanted to publish with. And then uh, as I sort of mature into my sort of learning and continuous learning, uh, I found the perfect journal that, you know, I would repeatedly publish in this journal constantly without having to, to look for other places. And so it's a wide range of subject matters. And we also have book reviews as well, too, like any journal would. And what we try to do is we try, try to stay within the last two and a half years of uh, works that came out. So again, it's producing new knowledge. And in that sense, uh, any cutting edge area that combines even religion and science uh, they're welcome in this journal as well, too. And so once again, um, it's exciting to be part of a new project. It's exciting to be part of a new endeavor and producing new new knowledge. What caught my interest, Caleb, as you were talking about these parables, there's a second article uh, in the journal that actually is called Rethinking the Parables of Luke 15. And I thought that was kind of nice the way that you sort of you know, thought about and you used that word parable. And for Christian audiences, the story about the prodigal son, you know, there's two, two boys. The older is the one that's kind of 
the staying in the house. And the second one is the one that says, well, father's still alive. Can I have my inheritance? And which in the first century context would be an anathema. And so um, uh, Dr. Melbourne's reading actually says there's actually four parables in this story, not uh, in ch- at least in Luke chapter 15, uh, instead of the story about the lost sheep, the lost coin, uh, the lost son. And he's he wants to split the last two as the lost sons, the older son is lost and the younger son is lost. So he's asking for four parables instead of three parables. And I think it's a very creative read there. And so, um, yeah, let me stop there and pause there for a minute and see if there's any other questions or any other sort of segues into our further conversation. Yeah, I think I think you know a question I have, and it's based off of something that you you mentioned uh, in your in your last answer was just about you know advice that you might give to you know let's say both on the one hand undergraduate students, people that might just you know be taking an introductory course in religious studies, um, and and also early stage academics, people that are in graduate school and are you know trying to look more at what journals to publish in and are curious about how they can engage with other scholars in their field. So let me start with the second half of your question, which is like addressing grad students. And there's a lot of pessimists out in the field that say, oh, when you get your PhD, you know, there's no job out there. Don't listen to those pessimists. They're all, they're all, there will always be those who try to pull you down. And even before you start, you know, there's this, negativity that is out there. If you believe in what you do and you are talented and you're coming out of a good program, there will always be a position for for people like that. And those who stay humble, those who want to work hard, there are a plethora of opportunities. And so that's the first thing that I want to say to those grad students. And I hope you publish with us as well too. And it's easily done. Contact the editor, talk to them, share what you want to do, and present those ideas at regional levels or national levels. Bounce the ideas around other people. Writing for a journal is very different, or writing in a, you know, having something published is a much more broader experience than it is than presenting a paper for a professor or for a class or so. It means that you have something new to offer to the field, something that we haven't thought about. And sometimes grad students have the best ideas. And the thing is, sometimes it may not be well-developed. That's the one thing. Or they may have, uh, there may be other scholars who have said certain things that align with what the student wants to argue. And it's to have that read a bit more comprehensively. And if the student or the grad student is teachable and is willing to learn and to to be malleable, uh, there will always be opportunities for such students to advance themselves. And I hope that we can get connected. In fact, they can send me an email, John on at howard.edu, basically, or just look me up. And I'd be more than willing to work with grad students as well, too. And so I want this journal not to be a place where it's just for established scholars. And oftentimes we have these journals that's, oh, you know, we only get journals from established folks. I think what's remarkable about this journal as we look towards the, let's say, historically up and coming scholars were published. Uh, just to see her, Rosemary Rutford uh, passed away. She was one of the very first women to, to be published in this journal as well, too. Uh, so it, that's, that in itself is historical and remarkable. 
And so um, for grad students of such, for undergrads, uh, for religious studies, I think it's one of the best fields to, to study. Just as not only is it for critical thinking and critical writing, but it just helps us to better understand human beings at large. And what religious studies does is it opens up an avenue of what people believe, why people believe, and values that are driven by religious dispositions. They cut across all disciplines, including law, economics, medicine. And so it just becomes a, a much more richer way. And for aspiring undergrads, um, I would say just don't be in a rush to publish. Uh, just take your time, develop your writing skills, uh, be well read. If your pro professor says, oh, this is publishable, that's a different story, of course, okay? And so there may be those exceptional bright folks that has such a great idea or have such a fantastic idea that they may want to share with others as well. And so there are venues and opportunities for so. Uh, but especially as they continue to mature in their thinking process and their studying process, uh, I hope to, to meet some of them. Um, and I hope, you know, relationships can be developed even as they're listening to this. And so um, just hit me an email and it'll be cool just to, to say hello. Uh, most of the professors are very approachable. I would say most, okay. <laughs> and uh, but I, I hope to see a new generation of grad students and undergrads that are aspiring to, to publish. And hopefully, you know, one of those sort of benchmarks for you one of these days would be um, the Journal of Black Religious Thought. And to say, I'm thinking in terms of black consciousness, and I'd like to get published one day um, in a journal that's published by Brill as well, too. So, yeah. I'm, I'm wondering, you know, for the, for the journal, if there are any plans in the future, um, you know, when the next edition will be coming out, uh, and if there's just anything else related to, to future plans. Well, our second issue is scheduled out November or December. So there's always, like most journals, so as soon as first issue is done, we go right away into working on this. So it's a nonstop sort of ven venture, as we would say. And so we have about four articles, five articles in the pipeline, maybe three or four book reviews in the pipeline right now as we speak. And so that's going to get sort of finalized. And But the other good thing is a lot of journals take a year, minimum of a year for works to be published. We turn things around very quickly. We let the the author know whether the article has been accepted or not were very quickly so our turn time turnaround time is faster than i would say most journals um, and our book reviews are i think also we do a stellar job of of getting books that are even yet to be published we get advanced pdf copies of it and so there are two books that we reviewed in the first issue actually uh, that came out before the actual books themselves came out because we had advanced copies. And so for the current uh, issue number two, um, we have about four or five um, articles there. Uh, the one that I remember mo most right now is actually an article by a grad student. He uh, presented that paper in a regional SVL meeting here. And he's a PhD student down in Duke now. He has a master's from our school, Howard. And he... He argues the reason why Job suffered is because 
he owned slaves and that he didn't do anything about freeing his slaves another unique perspective as well too. so there's a slight little connection between what we talked about a few minutes about joseph and about job and so as an editor i'm thinking of are there ways to create the thematic and literary bridges between issue one and issue two it's like let's say that when you're going through a vogue magazine or you know, one of those fashion iconic magazines, there's a story that's being told with every image, right? Every page that's being laid across in such a way that there's a story, there's a theme. And although, you know, some people may not see the, the sort of the actual sort of the, the storyline, any good editor with an eye can see. And then so that's the same thing that we're trying to do as well, too, with issue one and issue two. And then every third or fourth issue that we'll have is going to be very sort of monolithically focused on uh, a, a important voice. And so we have one that is probably being prepared for uh, two, two of the most prominent voices in, in our field, uh, the recent passing of legacy giants, basically like James Cone and also Albert Rabato. And so there's going to be an issue dedicated to the works of Cone and uh, Rabato. I think that's going to be probably issue, volume two, issue four, I want to say. So again, or issue two, volume two, issue two. Yeah, that's exactly it. So that's about three issues away. But again, so we have a, you know, a timeline of where about five, five years into, into everything at large. And, so, and then after that, we have our normal contributions that come in. And then there's another special issue that goes out as well too and so but again um, journals are exciting because they cover a wide range and it's you you quite don't know what you get until you actually have the the pieces at hand and contributors are contributing it and so i hope others are listening and our colleagues are listening and it's a great endeavor uh, the editorial board is very diverse as well too they're some of the most brilliant people in the field right now and i'd love to get some uh, input and voices from our up-and-coming scholars as well as our seasoned scholars and those of us who are in between those two sort of stages of life uh you know the, the last thing i'd like to ask sort of moving away from talking about the journal and just talking about you know w- w- are, are you working on anything uh any book projects any new articles things that you're exploring well, I'm working on uh, three or four, actually, but uh, there are two things that I have been working on for a long time. One is on the wilderness tradition, and the wilderness tradition is something that is, uh, in some ways, right after liberation takes place, you, you're winding up in this place called the wilderness. It's both a sacred place, but it's also a mundane place, and... Oftentimes, we see the wilderness as this period between homelessness, landlessness. And it speaks volumes because what the wilderness is, in my opinion, isn't just an exilic experience, but it's also a return experience when you come back to your homeland and it's just devastated. There's nothing, doesn't even look like your homeland. And thereby, you know, that entire episode is called the wilderness. And so historically then, even after the 6th century and 5th century, moving in with other empires reigning, I still see that as an entire wilderness experience as well. Too. And so that's one of the things that I'm working on. 
Um, and I call, there's a more specific topic called return as return, forced return migration or voluntary return migration. And I do a little bit more uh, on works of forced return migration studies, meaning, like, simply put, think of the Ukraine situation right now. All right, let's say that the war ends. How many would be willing to return back to their homeland? And how many would be afraid to return, thinking that what if Russia invades again? Do I really want this entire experience, being forced to leave my country, and then thinking about coming back, and then I have to go again? And so there's a specific area in the field called return migration studies that evolved in the mid-early 80s or so. And I'm using that theoretical ideologies to sort of reframe what the return of the Jews may have been like after the exile. And so uh, that's my second major project that goes along with exile as forced migration. So those are the two large projects that I have right now. And then there are two more smaller projects, but the two smaller projects are actually, it'll take longer. Um, and as soon as these two uh, big major projects are done, the two minors will become my major projects. But um, then I'm working on a commentary on the book of Hosea as well, too, for Oxford University Press. And then that last sort of minor project that I told you about is um, on canon. What, what does it mean for us to have this canon? Um, for example, uh, that the Jewish authors read other ancient canons to, to be inspired. Uh, so if you look at the book of Ecclesiastes or Kohelet, it sounds very Asian, meaning that it's got Asian ideologies. And so were they introduced, were they in conversations with other, other community of scholars or other literatures in the Persian period or in the Hellenistic period? You know, when we think of the 4th century, 3rd century BCE, we think so narrowly and think, oh, it's just a sort of a landlocked way of looking at things when there's trade going on. If there's trade going on and there's ideas from India coming into Persia and there are ideas floating in from China coming into the Persian context and the Jews of the ancient world were so well read, it's hard to imagine that they're not in some conversation with other canons of their time. And so that's what I'm interested in as well, too. And so um, continue to explore different venues and different sort of connections to be more relational. And I think what the Hebrew Bible does, it allows us to be more human and it allows for us to, to seek the divine in each other, in community, and at the end of the day, produce something called new knowledge. Wow, thank you so much. That was, you know, those all those all those projects sound fascinating. Um, you know, I uh, I think it's very, you know, admirable how how passionate you are about the research and work that you're doing. Um, and you know, that last, uh, you know, I'll, I'll ask you about this later about the uh, the, the eight potential Asian roots of Ecclesiastes because that sounds really interesting to me. About wondering about how much you know, inter interchange or inter, you know, how much exchange is going on um, at that period of time, because I'm always skeptical of this kind of idea that, oh, you know, you have the West over here and the East over here, and there is no connection until, 
you know, the 18th century when, you know, the 16th, 17th century when the Dutch start, you know, <laughs> start doing trade. That can't be true. There's just no way that's true. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Caleb. I think there's much more that's in the text that we can see, we can hear. And scholars have been publishing. Scholars for the past, you know, 20, 30 years have been publishing here and there as well. Too. And there's fantastic works that we can sort of uh, be more definitive of and towards. And so uh, I guess it's who's sitting at the table, right? And, and if there's more diversity at the table, then you can actually see uh, that diverse levels of scholarship. And you look at the diversity of the Bible or the peoples of the ancient context, right? There's just incredible amount of diversity. And I think that's the celebration of scholarship as well, to in that diverse inclusive, culturally rich way. Wonderful. Well, you know, listeners should should look up the Journal of Black Religious Thought. Um, this is great speaking with you, John. Uh, thank you so much. My pleasure, Caleb. Thank you again for having me. <laughs>